This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back to the podcast. Here we are in Studio B. I'm here with my co-host James DiVirgilio. I'm Alan Williams. Glad to have you guys back listening. Gators coming off a uh, somewhat lackluster, I guess, victory over Vanderbilt. Still a victory. Clinching the SEC East. We're going to get all into that game. We're going to talk about Treon and the offense. But first, let's talk that last kick from our man Austin Harden coming through. James, how are you feeling when he lined up for that kick? Well, we were sitting in the stadium right next to each other, and we had a uh, a fun little game of will Austin make this kick between between both of us. And I believe my logic, which was extremely sound, was you know this is this is a kick that that Austin makes because it makes no sense for him to make this kick, which is why he's going to make it. And and of course, can you really base an opinion on that? No, I mean. He's flipping a coin in essence. And and those are my thoughts pre-kick. And Alan, I turned to you after explaining my rationale and asked you the same thing. And you said, essentially, I feel like I want to throw up or something like that. I mean, we were about, I don't remember what point, somewhere in the middle of the fourth quarter, maybe beginning of the fourth quarter, I could see where this game was heading. And I go, I'm already dreading the field goal attempt at the end of this game. It just felt like that's where we were heading. And I guess it turned out right. Um... I did not have the confidence in young Austin that you did, but he seems to do the opposite of what we expect, so maybe you were right on the money there. I yeah, guess you were. and that was really just like we said, can you have confidence? No, but it just kind of made sense, given the Austin Harden story, that he would make that kick. <laughs> I mean, it was right down the middle. I mean, yeah, it was he nailed it. Everything you thought a former number one kicking recruit would be doing for his whole career, but you know what? He did it. It was just enough to win. And the main reason we were able to win was primarily and really almost entirely due to two units, one special teams, but two defense. Talk about the defensive dominance that went on on Saturday. I mean, we played at such a high level. It was so encouraging to see this defense really grind it out and keep us in this game. Really, except for that one play right before the half, the you know 80-yard touchdown run or whatever it was, this defense locked Vanderbilt down. Now, uh, it was Vanderbilt's strategy seemingly to run the ball and then punt it. Um, but the defense didn't allow them to do really anything. They bottled up uh, the run game pretty well. They they looked spectacular out there for the most part. And other than you know the referee playing a little offense there and kind of helping them bust that run, uh, they were excellent. I know you were encouraged by it as well. Yeah, we held Vandy to a season low, and their offense is not good. Like we talked about on the podcast last week, no. they put up 44 yards passing against Houston. They had nine yards until the very last play <laughs> against us, which allowed them to finish with 30 yards on the game. But we held them even to their own averages to season lows. So season lows in total offensive production. Um, the defense did a stellar job. If you take away one play, the one play – uh, by, of course, you know the running back we mentioned last yeah. week, Gainesville, Gainesville grad. You, you kind of feel good for that guy. McElwain actually said that as well. Uh, if you take away that one play, they would have had you know 75 or 76 total yards of offense in an entire football game, um, which was incredible. But strategically, it also made some sense. Uh, I know later on in the week I was saying if I was Vandy, I would, I would literally play the kneel down, kneel down, kneel down punt strategy. 
And if we did, the game would be like nine to three or nine to six. And they successfully did that. They did it. <laughs> Even though our defense had a historically good output, um, they they did it and they they almost won the game because of it. But the main storyline, and it's exactly what we said last week, the key to the game was what could we not do? Turnovers. Yeah, and some of these were especially bad. Some of them maybe bad refereeing with the CC Jefferson fumble. Not sure still about that call. And and one was a Treon basically arm punt where it's fourth down. It doesn't do him any good to run out of bounds or you know throw the ball away, just chuck it up. But some really costly fumbles by both Treon and D Rob were you know just keeps stopping our momentum. I mean, we had some incredible field position in this game. Uh, the fact that we scored only twice is kind of mind-boggling. I, it's almost just by percentages you should score more than that. It's crazy how ineffective we were overall on offense. Yeah, it really was. I mean, six of our drives started. Six of them started in Vanderbilt's territory. 11 of our 13 drives finished in their territory, and we scored nine points. I mean, that is actually an incredible statistic that it's crazy that you're just not going to see in many college football games at all and the funny thing about it is you look at the numbers and you say okay we should have scored more but it felt like Vanderbilt had a vice grip on us even though we had great field position which is a really weird thing to experience because if you're coming downhill that often you should just be scoring but yeah it was normally, like it didn't matter where we got the ball you felt like we weren't going to score a point normally if you look at the stats and if you'd see the team starting with our field position those are the types of games that you win, like, 40-something to, like, 6. I mean, it should result in an absolute blowout. And the fact that we couldn't manufacture any points uh, was extremely frustrating, I know, for the team itself, for the fans, for everybody all around. And this was a game, I know you and I talked about this during the game, where we really could have won this game very easily. Yeah. Uh, McElwain talked a little bit about it in the presser uh, on Monday, about how Essentially, the team came out. We got that big return. We got a big run right away from Scarlett. And it kind of felt like, oh, we're going to blow them out. Um, and I even said in the stands, this is exactly what we need because mm-hmm. I haven't been fearing that this game uh, could really be very close if things went differently. And then, of course, it sort of unraveled. And McElwain alluded to the fact that that start could have been great for us if we had scored, which is what we actually said in the stands. And it could have been disastrous for us because we didn't. It may have lowered our level of intensity thinking, oh, it's only a matter of time before we walk over them. And uh, the game kind of felt like that. Yeah. You got midway through the second quarter, and you know there's an old saying in sports that's true, which is if you don't put a team away when you have your chances, the game generally starts to get locked in, and it goes a really long time, even if you're a superior team. And that that happened to us in that game. We missed a bunch of chances in the first 20 minutes to end the game and really put them out of the game, and then we wound up having to steal the game at the end. I said to somebody in the moment after we didn't score that first time. And then we got, you know, we kind of weren't taking advantage of some of these really good field position. It was like, we're going to end up in a one score game here. That's just how those things happen. And the game begins to tighten. Like you score a couple times early, the game has to loosen up. They have to be more aggressive. You're feeling more comfortable. So you're executing better. And then those things don't happen and the game slows down. And then you end up where we were winning nine to seven. Uh, well, James, let me ask you, we've talked a lot about Treon Harris, um, and it's interesting, like, there is some discussion on him in the media right now, um, and there's some people who would maybe see differently than you. I don't know, what what are your, your thoughts still the same on Treon after this game? Yeah, unfortunately, Treon has continued to confirm what listeners of this podcast have, have known, my opinion has been from the beginning, 
And I'm certainly not rooting for that. I would I would love for Treon to completely prove my analysis on him wrong, but he continues to kind of go in, in the direction of just proving it correct. At this point in time, it feels like you have to just be relying on hopeful, you know, blissful ignorance to sort of think that he's improving. Um, there's been articles to the contrary, like we just talked about. You know, Thomas Goldcamp, who's been a who's been a writer in town for a while, wrote an article on Sunday about how he thought Treon had quote marked improvement. Obviously, I don't I don't see that. I think the numbers don't back that up. Treon was 13 of 26, so he finished again at 50% with his completion rate. Uh, he led a Gator offense against Vanderbilt that put out one of the lowest outputs that Vanderbilt has has actually held a team to. Only Missouri, Austin P, and Western Kentucky put up fewer total yards than the Gators did in this game. Uh, nine of Treon's passes, nine of his 13 completions went to, to D-Rob. Most of those plays were hitches, they were out routes, they were short little digs, they were very basic one-read option, you know, just that that's who he's throwing the ball to kind of pass. Um, and he completed four other passes in total. And so the offense was really rendered completely ineffective. I know the offensive line caught a lot of flack for this, which is part of it, but kind of zooming out the lens and saying, hey, what went wrong? Like when you watch the film, and, and I went back and charted each one of his passes, when you watch what's going on, What's happening? Well, a lot of a lot of what's happening is what we mentioned in the beginning of the season, which is we are now a much more predictable offense. Vanderbilt essentially sold out and was just double teaming the edge the entire game. I mean, it's very rare that you're going to see a team have their linebackers on hike, shoot out and double team the edge of the field. And in fact, that's exactly how D-Rob got his, his big 36-yard gain in the first half, is that the linebacker actually just vacated the middle and covered the edge to double team it because Trian didn't throw the ball over the middle. After halftime, Vanderbilt adjusted on that, and Treon threw for you know less than like, I don't know, 57 yards in the second half, and they, they started covering the middle. They stopped the little bunny drag route. So there's nothing on film that Treon shows me that he's improving. And in fact, what I'm seeing happening is the more film he puts out there, the more the better defenses in college football are able to lock him down. They take away his running lanes. They take away his bootleg play. They take away the throws he wants to make. And uh, now... The teams have seen that he wants to throw the ball to D-Rob on these short dig routes. They'll take that away too. And they're just kind of slowly squeezing Treon. And so I wish I saw something on film that said, hey, we look multiple, we can do things. But we've actually so simplified the offense that uh, it's not, it doesn't even look remotely like what we were running before. I mean, you're missing a lot of the five wide sets. And, and like we said, the offensive line's taking a lot of the heat. I think McElwain is protecting Treon, and rightfully so. I don't think you can get in front of the media and say, hey, Treon really played a terrible game. He, you know, he's he's one of the guys you're going with right now. You have to protect him some. Uh, I'm sure his confidence is in a little bit of a fragile state. So you can't necessarily take what McElwain is saying at face value with regard to Treon's play. I imagine he's very frustrated with it when he puts the tape in as well. But he can't make the same candid comments we can because right now he's using this guy. He needs this guy to be able to win. You can't just sort of obliterate him. But very disappointing in a nutshell with regards to that. So let's let's kind of go a little deeper into this. The O-line has caught a lot of flack for this. In fact, McElwain almost blamed it on them, saying Treon had no chance. So you have been sort of the O-line specialist this year for this podcast. What are some of your thoughts on that? Is it valid? Does it have anything to do with the fact that Treon can't get the ball out as quickly in the face of a blitz or some other things? Or is this just was this a regression from the offensive line on Saturday? Well, I you know, I'm not someone who watches film on offensive linemen. I don't know offensive line techniques. And... Certainly, this isn't a peak group. This isn't an LSU offensive line. This isn't you know some team that just knocks people off the ball. I don't. I didn't see anything really differently from this group 
this week. I don't think they were sharp. I don't think they were making plays necessarily. Uh, Vanderbilt does have a really solid defense. So contextualize, it's difficult to move the ball against them. Uh, so I think the offensive line is not masking Treon's weaknesses. They're not like, you know, if you had a pretty bad quarterback and a great offensive line you can do a lot more things they're not winning the game for us but they're at least putting us in position two when they're not going to lose the game for us at this point i think they've kind of achieved that level of play so that's that's the frustrating thing i'm certainly there's pressure uh often you know it's not like there's always a clean pocket back there but we've seen even when there is a clean pocket Trion hasn't been able to like get the ball out on time so I, the offensive line can play better. We're hoping that they will play better as these guys, the young guys, continue to get more experience. But I don't think the all of the blame lies in their feet. Certainly, that narrative you know holds no water for me. Yeah, I feel I feel the same way. I mean, while they they didn't have their best game, I think so much of why they were improving was the fact that we could keep teams completely off balance with how we were attacking them. You know, we ran a variety of formations. We could actually go with five linemen and run plays effectively. Uh, if a guy like Will Greer was in at quarterback last week, he would have absolutely torched Vanderbilt with how often they were just completely blitzing their middle linebacker. And Treon even said as much. Treon basically said that as, as soon as the play was snapped and they read it was passed, they just shot the Mike linebacker right up the middle. And, and of course you can do that against a quarterback that's not going to make a blitz read. And, and that that's going to make the offensive line look bad. They're at a disadvantage. Number-wise, you're already playing a bunch of freshmen. And so even though I think they were blocking the right guys, they were. There wasn't a lot of blown assignments. You weren't seeing guys just whiff on guys. Uh, it was It was more the fact that Vanderbilt could be really confident they knew what we were doing. And we are not a strong enough team to tell you we're going to line up this way and run this play, try and no. stop us. And that and that is a little bit concerning as we, as we move forward. And I do want to say about the defense, we've talked about them. Uh, you know, it's easy for a team to get really frustrated with one side of the ball is completely failing the other one. And, you know, they didn't really lose focus. You know, they had that one play, you know, that probably should have been a 10-yard gain because it was blocked nicely but and not a 75-yard run. But other than that, I mean, they maintained focus the entire time. They didn't seem discouraged. Uh, hopefully they can keep that up. But I did want to mention that that's like, you know, a great sign from this team that they, they're going to have to be able to endure that kind of mental adversity. Yeah, and that's the best thing, I think, about coming out of a game like this where you had some bad turnovers, you didn't you didn't necessarily play your best game. There was incredible team unity out there. Um, I think the fans probably feel a whole lot more frustrated than the players do. I mean, and that's a masterful job by McElwain because I can assure you that guys like Brandon Powell, who have all but disappeared from the team with Treon being his quarterback, are frustrated. But you don't see them visibly showing signs of frustration all the way till the end of the game, gutting out a drive to get a field goal to win. And that, that's a that's an incredible, incredible just sign of a great coach because these are not McElwain's guys. These are not the guys he recruited. And so to kind of get that culture instilled that quickly is is a huge plus looking forward into the future. So we like to think about the game strategically, and I think you do an exceptional job at that. There's something kind of game theory-esque going on that I think a lot of people are starting to talk about with our QB situation. Just fill us in on what are you thinking or maybe even proposing well, we talked about this on the show last week a little bit, and I had several conversations about it when I had mentioned Jacob Guy. And the kind of two questions you get are, oh, are you, are you hitching your wagon to Jacob Guy? Are you a believer in Jacob Guy? Uh, or are you are you saying that because you think that you have to see someone else to kind of judge where your ceiling is? And, and the, the answer is absolutely the latter. Look, I think Jacob Guy's film is great. We posted it up on our site. You can check it out. 
high school film is still high school film. I haven't seen I haven't seen him play. You know, I'm not talking to the guy. I don't know what he's doing during the week. Um, but what I can tell you is it doesn't really matter because game theory is going to tell you that if your quarterback is at a certain level where Treon is at from what we've seen so far, your team is going to be at a certain level. And football is a sport where the quarterback is absolutely by far the most important position. You can see this at any level, including the Gators. Uh, you see it with the Cowboys in the NFL. You see it with any team you particularly want in any level, like we talked about. And we're not going to get great play out of Treon. We've already seen that. He's limited. You can still win with Treon. But the reality is virtually any quarterback you would have marched out there on Saturday would have been able to do what Treon did. And so you get sort of a replacement level, if you want to use an advanced stat, performance. And so if you want to look at it as a game theorist, what you're going to say is, I know what I have with this guy. I don't believe I'm capable of beating the Giants of college football. It's not good enough to win like a college football player. It's good enough to beat Vanderbilt, but not like win at the highest level. I could beat South Carolina, I could beat FAU, but you know what? The odds of me beating Alabama and then potentially winning two playoff games are, are probably almost none, mathematically. So what you say to yourself then is, if that's the situation I'm facing and I'm a logical, rational thinker, I need to think about doing something different. And and something that may seem quote-unquote crazy, like playing a walk-on quarterback, is not so crazy when you look at it through that lens because you're trying to maximize your output. And in order to do that, you have to try different inputs. And so you say, hey, look, maybe I give Jacob Guy some reps. Maybe I see what he can do because I know I can't win it with Treon. And really, at the end of the day, is there any difference between going, you know, 10 and 4 or 12 and 2 or pick whatever record you want if you're ultimately still the SEC East Division winner with nothing else? Does that even matter? Yeah, it's a unique spot because the Gators have locked in the SEC East. So. Yeah, and you think, okay, well, nothing more is going to happen at our current state. What if we tried almost anything else? And then, big caveat, obviously, we're not in on practice. We have no idea Jacob Guy could be the worst quarterback ever, so that could this argument could be moot. And I think uh, Josh Grady, the Vanderbilt transfer, is probably just a similar version of Treon, probably slightly downgraded. But So it's just an idea that of the something else is really not like such a Jacob Guy is the greatest – guy on earth why is he not playing but just a a thought if we're stuck here at this level what we're doing why wouldn't you try something else yeah and i thought and i hate to even say this on a gator nation fall podcast but i thought florida state did a nice job of that this past weekend how dare you sir i know and i hate myself for saying it they lost the game which which is great i know some gators are rooting for them because of the college football playoff and whatnot but they did that they benched a guy that they said essentially was not producing for them for an unknown. Now, he wasn't a walk-on, but it doesn't even really matter. We're going to play a South Carolina team this week who's playing a walk-on, who's doing a nice job. Um, you know, Jacob Guy, I think, has, has skills far beyond a walk-on. But to tie a little bow on this, it's always important to realize that if you think you know very well what you have in life, and you can see what that output is, and it's not good enough to win the game that you're playing, then you shouldn't do it. Because the goal is to win the game that you're playing. Like we said, we can't accomplish anything else unless we take some chances now to try to improve our team. And some people are going to say, well, hey, I think we can beat Alabama with Treon. And, you know, could we? Maybe one or two or three out of 100 times if everything goes perfect, sure. Well, there have to be drastic improvement. There have, Something will have to change. Either his play has to change or there has to be another quarterback. Right, and I think we've got a large enough sample size now where we know that Treon is Treon. His numbers actually are almost exactly the same as last year's numbers. That was a different offense. It was a different offensive coordinator. He has basically the same completion rate, the same yards per attempt. I mean, he's the same guy. If you watch his high school film, he's the same guy. So it's really hard to believe that he's just going to all of a sudden make a magical improvement. I think it's unfortunate in a sport like football, you have a lot of this dogma 
that you don't make these changes. You don't ruffle the feathers. You don't start an unknown. You don't rattle the winning saber. Uh, you know, McIlwain talks about we're on a championship drive. All those things are nice, but ultimately what happens at the end of the year is you just lose. You wind up hitting your ceiling and you lose. And you say something nice like we maximized our ceiling. We were dealt a bad hand. But I think you owe it to yourself to, to explore every option to attempt to extend your potential output. So maybe when you play Alabama, as opposed to winning three, four, or five times out of 100, maybe you win 10 or 12. And and that's fine. Like, that's the goal, right? You're trying to increase your winning edge. And so that's that's a thought. That's what we're thinking here at the podcast. Uh, we wanted to kind of give you guys a little insight on that. And we want to expand this little strategy segment into the fourth down situations. It's been very interesting this year. In a way, it's really refreshing. We go for it on fourth down a lot. Allen, uh, we went for it early in the first quarter of this game. I know you and I had thoughts on that. What were you thinking when McIlwain lines up early against Vanderbilt for that fourth down? It's interesting because I feel like I'm having this internal argument with myself. I love being aggressive around the goal line because often what's going to happen, even if you don't pick it up, if you go for it in fourth and one at the goal line, if the, you know they're stuck in such a bad spot, they're probably going to punt it back to you when you're still roughly in field goal range you know, with a normal field goal kicker, you know, not our set of kickers. So I love the aggression, but I also think you have to say it, uh, take your opponent into account. And you mentioned this on Saturday that a field goal against Vanderbilt right there is actually significant. It's not a game where the game's going to be in, you know, the forties and kicking field goals, almost useless points. matter, we saw this game, game come to two points. So a field goal there puts the pressure on them. And uh, this is maybe more classic kind of coach thinking, which I normally don't buy into. But I thought in that moment it would have been really good to kick the field goal. But, you know, we saw, you know, the dentist himself miss an extra point horribly. So maybe going for it wasn't much worse of an option. I don't know. Your thoughts on that too. Yeah, it's funny because I think anyone who knows me knows I love to be aggressive. I hate punting on fourth down. I don't want to kick field goals. But, again, it, this goes back to game theory. You have to look at the expected value. And you say if Austin Harden or the dentist, as I love the rest, we're going to call them from now on, the dentist, as Matt called them, if they're 50%, which would be horrifically bad, but if they're 50% on a 25-yard field goal, that's better than what Treon is on fourth down. I don't know what his numbers are, but they got to be below like 10%. The guy does not convert convert fourth downs. He hasn't converted a fourth down in the past you know, two games passing the ball. So to me, you say, okay, 5 6% chance of scoring six points, 50% chance of scoring three points. My opponent doesn't score points at all. I'm going to take three points. I'm going to take the effort, the attempt of taking three points. I thought I would have played the game that way. Um, you know, I, again, different scenario, different quarterback, different team. Yeah, go for that. Absolutely. No big deal. Put them away. But this team has a very low margin for error, and every point we can get will be important. And even if we do miss a lot of field goals, we're just playing the mathematical probabilities here. So it's, it's interesting to talk about as fans. We enjoy it. I think you can argue both sides, but certainly given where we are in the passing game right now, we've been unable to hit that. In fact, we we ran the ball on that fourth down. This is McIlwain, a guy who is a quintessential passer, a short game passer, a wizard of getting guys open, and we ran the ball, which I think shows you it's a little telling. bit about what's going on. We faked a field goal on fourth and short. I mean, it, it's, showing you he, yeah, it's showing you he doesn't have a lot of faith in the offense to get it, but he wants to get it because it's in his nature. And I mean, you could see it as presser today. It's almost eating him up. You know, he's like, yeah, I just, I love to go for that. That's important to me. But I think he's even realizing it's just like, he's not getting it as much as he should be getting it. And I'm sure that's frustrating. So all in all, is it a deal breaker? No, you can argue on both sides. But I like in the long term that he goes for those fourth downs. Because this is an aberration here. McElwain's only going to have better quarterbacks and better situations as we go forward. And it's going to be awesome when he goes for those sort of things. So I love it long term. Short term is interesting. And then Alan, let's, let's dive into... 
a guy we haven't talked about very often, Doug Nussmeyer, along with McIlwain. What what are we thinking they can do? We've talked a lot about what's been going wrong. What what can they do? Is there hope? Is there sunshine down our path here? Yeah, that's the biggest question. I think is there any hope for improvement? Uh, you know, outside just people playing well above their you know stated or marked kind of production level. And we give McIlwain a lot of credit. I think Nussmeyer deserves some credit too. He's in the coaching room. Who knows how much to divvy up the credit where and how many places, but. So those that combo of thinkers plus the other rest of the offensive staff, McElwain, Nussmeyer. The question is, is there anything that we can do schematically to fix what's going on? And I'm not sure. It's really tough. Uh, I think the offensive line can improve just because we have really young guys. And so there should be a level that's raised as they go throughout the season. But I, I don't know. We've, we've tried to make it really simple. For Triana, that hasn't worked. James, is there any hope? Is there anything we can do differently schematically outside of, you know, just doing really crazy things? Yeah, I mean, that this is why I think the obvious thing to do is to try a thrower like Jacob Guy and not a guy like Grady, like you mentioned. You know, people ask, well, what about Grady? He's the backup. And yeah, he was promoted to backup, but he really is. He's another Trion guy. He barely cracked the rotation at Vanderbilt. He's not a thrower. He's more of an athlete. You got to try a guy who's thrower. Outside of that... Really, we've, we have tried everything schematically. If you go back and you look at the LSU, the Georgia, and the Vanderbilt film, it has been a progression of trying to run plays that they think Treon can execute. And the problem with this, and I love to talk to my brother about this in baseball, is that if you're a major league pitcher and you get your debut, a lot of times you'll do pretty well if you're a talented guy, and then the hitters start to get tape on you. When they figure out a certain pitch you don't throw well in certain situations, they start drilling it. And that's exactly what's happening with Treon. And so as we simplify the offense for Treon, defenses are honing in on what he can't do and I think using game theory the thing we could do to be crazy would be to try to go back more to the will style offense and hope that Shreon can make some of these passes to keep defenses honest because buckling it in running heavy sets the gray package as we call it trying to power run trying to throw the outside trying to run the levels in the bootleg those plays have been taken away by good defenses so yeah the answer is if there's hope we have to really start thinking outside of the box and less about what does Treon do well because he doesn't do it well enough to beat defenses that know he's going to do it. I would actually like to see us go to a QB heavy, QB run heavy system here. Because the thought before was that you cannot afford to have Treon get hurt, so don't run him very often because our season will be shattered. At this point, we're close to the end of the year. I would love to see us start running more zone read, some just straight QB runs. That is the thing he does best. Um, make threaten them some other way. Now this is like super simplistic football, you know, QB run. But I think if you remove the fear, take away the fear that if he got hurt, we're screwed. I think that opens up some possibilities for us. Otherwise, I don't know. I don't think just shifting tight ends or running certain kinds of routes those haven't been effective. That is maybe our last option open to us. Any last thoughts before we close up this little Vanderbilt section? I, I want to say on a really positive note that we are the SEC East champions. Yeah, celebrate that. And that's, and that's incredible. We, and now this, this podcast is very analytical, so we're going to talk a lot about what we see. Sometimes I think people could confuse some of these thoughts as being positive or negative. I think the funny thing about this year is we were probably way more positive than the normal media was early on with Will's play. Super excited about how that elevated the team. And now we're probably and have been, especially starting with the LSU game, more negative. 
that's simply because of what we're seeing. There's not a slant here. You don't have favorites. But all in all, this team accomplished something that you and I did not pick them to accomplish. We did think we could be good this year. We said as much in the opening episode. But we are SEC East champions. It's the first time since 2009 that this has happened. Certainly, Will Muschamp, you know, was unable to accomplish this in his time here. Uh, that's that's fantastic. I mean, that's something that we need to be celebrating here in Gainesville. And all in all, here's what matters the most. This season will end. You know, with Treon at quarterback, there's no way that we're going to win a national title. We're probably going to accomplish anything like that unless something really, truly extraordinary happens. But it wouldn't even matter because this is the long-term view. We have a coach in McElwain who looks like he's building a foundation for the Gators to be powerful every single year. This is just the beginning. And when you pull back and think about it that way, and you get out of the micro moment, really exciting. And this game was really exciting for that reason. We got over the hump. We did win the game. We are SEC East champions. We're back where Florida should be. It feels nice to be going to Atlanta, even if our prize is a is an Alabama team that, that did work against LSU. We did win something this year, and very few people thought that was going to happen. We were picked, what, fifth? Fifth in the SEC fifth. East? No one expected fifth. this. I mean, this chance... This team has a chance and will probably win 10 games. That's astonishing. Like, I don't, no one predicted that. So, congratulations to McElwain, his staff, and all the players. Great job so far. Uh, and with that, let's talk to our Gator Nation guest, who, a former Gator great himself. Let's see what he has to say. We are joined now by Gator great Gus Scott, played for the Gators from 2000 to 2003. He was drafted by the New England Patriots in the third round in the 2004 draft. He currently is living in Jacksonville, where he is the head coach of the Trinity Christian Academy, the same high school he actually went to. Gus, thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Well, Gus, I know that you follow the team closely. What have you been most impressed by in this year's Gator team? Oh, man. I, I, I guess I could say the, the passion the kids playing for. You know what I mean? The way they defend, especially like the swamp, you know, you just notice that early in the season, you know, it, it's a disciplined team, you know what I mean? Just a just a, a team that really, you could tell they understand what's going on and a prepared team. You could tell they prepared every, at least they may not make the, they may not make the right play, but they still prepared and at least in the right spots most, most of the time. So we've been ex- especially successful on defense this year. You're a guy who played safety. What have you noticed about what's allowed them to have so much success? Uh, just like I said before, man, a lot of teams on third down, they call it the money down. And just third down, you got to win. You know, that determines you get off the field, you know, or you stay on the field. And you could tell, that, you know, they really study film and they, they know what team's favorite routes are. Because a lot of, I mean, you can see second half sometimes, they just eliminate a lot of all defense, offenses because, you know what I mean, they don't seen it once. Actually, they don't heard it all week, and then they see it one time in the game. And from there on, it's like you know, they shut it down. So I mean, you, you could definitely see them guys really in tuned on on money downs and getting off the field. You know. And Gus, in a game like Saturday's game against Vanderbilt, when you're on defense and the offense is really struggling to put a team away or even score, what are what are some of the things you have to do as a defender to keep yourself in the game so that you don't get frustrated? sort of within your own team. You don't get angry at what's going on within your own sideline. I mean, how, how hard is that as a defender when you're watching your offense struggle? Uh, first thing is probably be a teammate. You know what I'm saying? It's easy to be a teammate when things are going good, when everybody's winning and it's a blowout. You know what I mean? 
because, I mean, most of the time, sometimes the offense has to carry the defense. Sometimes the defense got to carry the offense. Or special teams have to make plays. It, it, it don't matter. You just want victories. And as a defense, you just want to keep field position and give them chances. You know what I mean? It actually makes you focus in a lot more because you know how, imp- how important, you know, those downs are and getting the ball back and putting your, you know, trying to make a play, at least trying to get your offense in a good situation. And given your experience in the year 2000, you clinched and won an SEC East title going to the SEC championship game in Atlanta. What do you remember about clinching that title and then having to play additional games before you went to Atlanta? Sort of, What was the feeling? Did you feel like you had accomplished something or was it more of, you know, we're waiting for the SEC title game? And just take me through kind of what, what that was like. Um, it, was, it was a great experience. I mean... I think we had lost on. I think we had on lost like two games. I mean, we was I think nine and two going in, playing Auburn, who was a good team. We had played them early in the year. It was just it was only my freshman year, so I really didn't know what to expect. You know what I mean? I I didn't understand it. You know, and I really didn't appreciate it as much as I thought I would. Because being it was our freshman, we thought we would get back and win two or three or four, and we never made it back. So <laughs> it just. It's definitely something you want to appreciate. I mean, enjoy it while you can, man. It's it's, it's a great honor to make it to that stage. You know what I mean? As, as a as a football player in your career to get to that game, so just appreciate it and, and get ready to play ball. And Gus, do you think that this Gator team will have a difficult time playing against South Carolina this week, given that we've just accomplished one of our goals? We're still in the playoff hunt, obviously, but this game does not matter for the SEC standings. Or do you think they'll be? fired up now that they've accomplished a goal it's behind them and now they can focus on the next things uh you know that's that's i mean i'm pretty sure that's every coach's nightmare you know wondering how your team will perform you know will they still be hungry you know what i mean you always you never want the team to feel like they accomplished nothing so i guess you'll really judge i mean their character or whatever you want to say or what kind of team you really have on this kind of these kind of games you know because you know you already won the east and I mean, it's still a chance for a shot for the national championship. You know what I mean? So, it'll be a good, it'll be a good chance to see see them out there again. I, I really can't. I really don't know what to expect with them this week. So, <laughs> I just hope they'll come out and play perform well. So it seems like we're headed for a showdown with Alabama in the SEC championship game. Do you have any thoughts about how the Gators might perform against a team like that? Oh man, I don't really want to predict anything on Alabama, but. Um, I think we we match up. I think the game the game is really about matchups. You know, I think we match up pretty well against their offense. And um, I don't know anybody that's been able to do anything on their defense all year. But I do believe you have to line up and play it. I mean, we will have to produce points somewhere on offense. But I think our defense match up pretty well against them. You know what I mean? I think McElwain is a good coach. He'll find a way for us to get some points. But. <laughs> We'll see. You know, that, that, that Bama defense looks scary out there at times, so we'll see. All right, let's talk about this week against South Carolina on the road. Give us a prediction. Do you think the Gators win? And give me a score. What do you think the score is going to be? Oh, man. Uh, SEC games is hard to predict. Oh, man. I want to say a, a, a 17-10 type game this week. Not sure. Um, I, don't, I don't really know how South Carolina is going to come out to play. I mean, they have been playing pretty good since Spurrier resigned. I guess I don't know. I'm not sure. I haven't paid too much attention to him since he retired. But um, 
I really think we'll, we'll put up at least 17 or 21 points. You know, I don't see the offense going more than 10, so I, I go with 21-10. Okay, 21-10. We've got you on the books for that, Gus. And lastly, <laughs> we, we ask every right. we ask every one of our, our Gator Nation guests this question. It's one of our favorites. When in Gainesville, what is your favorite restaurant to eat at? Oh, man. <laughs> well, I was a college student. You know, I was limited on funds. We always used to go to Guthrie's. Guthrie's was uh, great. For Peter Pitt. <laughs> you know, those like type college places. You know, he was on a budget those days, so it, it's not like I, I could go to uh, L House or anything. So, <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I would probably have to go with uh, Guthrie's, I guess. Hey, Guthrie's, Guthrie's is great. I used to love the gut box. Unfortunately, they uh, yeah, the gut yeah. Box. When when Gainesville lost Guthrie's several years back, it was it was definitely a sad day. Oh, when, they did. They did. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, I always go to Peter Pit. I still go to Peter Pit. Oh yeah, uh, right over there by the uh, swamp. Yeah, Peter Pit still. still you look. Oh yeah, Peter Pit's still going strong. Well, Gus, thanks so much for joining us today. We had a great time talking with you. Uh, we know you're about to mm-hmm. go to practice there at Trinity. Certainly wish you the best of luck with that today. Again, Gus Scott, uh, Gator great, 2000-2003, played in the NFL for the Patriots, which I won't hold against you. Gus, I'm a big Dolphins fan. I won't hold that against you. But uh, I don't do it. Yeah, th- thanks again All for being right. on the show. We enjoyed it. Before we jump into our thoughts on South Carolina, we want to have a, a, a fun segment on recruiting. There's been a lot of really positive things going on with regards to recruiting, we're going to talk a little bit about that now, and then on the, the flip side of that, we'll, we'll jump right into this, this weekend's game. We're joined now by our new production assistant, Austin Ryer. We're excited to have him on, and he's going to do a little segment here for us from time to time called Austin's Recruiting Roundup and give us a little info on this crazy world of recruiting. So, Austin, what's going on with the Gators right now? Well, guys, uh, Felipe Franks and Eli Stove were in Gainesville this weekend, and uh, they're two highly recruited athletes. Uh, Franks is a five-star quarterback who's committed to LSU at the time, and as you know, Florida's going to try to take another quarterback this recruiting cycle, so that would be a big flip to get him. And he's talking to some guys and, you know, looking at Florida a little bit more. And Eli Stove, who is a a six-foot-one wide receiver, four-star, who's looking at Florida, committed to Auburn currently, and with Auburn season not really the, going the way that they thought it would, got a real chance there. Uh, another note is uh, Jake Allen, who is committed to Florida for the 2016 year, announced on Twitter that his back is hurt and he's going to miss the remainder of his junior year. So that is an interesting development. And also Mac Wilson, uh, five-star linebacker out of Alabama, went to the Alabama LSU game this weekend and tweeted out, you know, that he still likes Alabama. He likes Alabama a good bit, but Florida is still leading for him, which is huge because another position you can bank on Florida trying to get a lot of on signing day is that linebacker. And Austin, speaking of Alabama, Derrick Henry had a huge weekend this weekend. And I know that we recruited, we recruited Derrick Henry, but we didn't recruit him as a running back. Can you tell us a little bit more about kind of his recruiting process and what Florida thought of him at the time? Right, and it's uh, funny because Derrick Henry growing up, he's a Gator fan, his parents are Gator fans, and he grew up about an hour and ten minutes from Gainesville, but uh, Will Muschamp and staff recruited him as a a pass rusher type of uh, player, kind of like a Fowler or even, I guess, a McAllister at this point, but uh, Nick Tim gave him a chance to run him back and handed the ball to him 38 times against LSU, and he rushed for 210 yards on Saturday night. Well, another comical error from the Muschamp error. 
But Austin, thanks for giving us that heads up, and we'll check in with you again sometime. So this week the Gators are going up against a South Carolina team that's actually been playing a lot better the last few weeks and is on a little bit of a roll since Steve Spurrier stepped down. You know, we talked about them at the beginning of the year, or we did several of our predictions of this team being garbage and we're going to crush them. I don't know if that's the case. So combining that with a potential of a letdown game after the SEC East has been clinched, do we struggle in this game, James? We might struggle in this game, but I don't know if it's going to be because of a letdown. Uh, I actually thought we came out like with fire against Vanderbilt, and, and so that game feels weird. But I also I, I just think McElwain gets his players to play well and consistently. So any score result of this game it would surprise me if it was quote-unquote an emotional letdown or focus letdown. And more so of the fact that South Carolina, as you just said, is playing much, much better football. I mean, if you dive into the numbers, South Carolina looks like a little bit of a scary team for us right now. I mean, they, they beat Vanderbilt 19-10. to 10. They put up about 350 yards on that Vanderbilt defense. And keep in mind, that they're playing a, a walk-on quarterback <laughs> at South Carolina. Um, they, they lost on the road to A&M by 7. They lost on the road to Tennessee in a game they probably should have won there at the end. This team is hungry. And we almost feel, as weird as this is, that we just won the East, we almost feel like we're trending in different directions, which which is a little funky. I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on a letdown? Do you think that we could just kind of sit on our laurels after winning the SEC East? Or, I mean, what are your thoughts? I think not that they're sitting on their laurels, potentially, but that, you know, just the emotions of, of this week, plus the fact that, you know, South Carolina isn't perceived as being great. I think the coaching staff is going to have to, like, teach the players that South Carolina is a little more dangerous. Um, yeah, this is a tough one. I, on the road, you know, I would have said, you know, three weeks ago that this is going to be an easy win for Florida. And now I feel like it's a much closer game. I feel like they're going to be able to put up a few points. I still think the defense will play well uh, in holding them. Uh, and, you know, their defense, it should be easier for us to move the ball on South Carolina than it was on Vanderbilt. So I think it's going to be a little more scoring going on this game than we saw last week. But it's, I, I think it's going to be closer than what we thought a few weeks ago. Yeah, the Vegas spread is eight, eight and a half, depending on what, you know which book you're looking at. Like you mentioned, South Carolina's defense, not very good. You know, 72nd in the country in points allowed. Uh, the same Vanderbilt team that, that ground out 150 yards against us, you know, put up 330 or so against them when they played just a few weeks ago. Uh, they allow 208 rushing yards a game. Which is nice. And that's important for us because yes, we're not we a great that. rushing team, but like we did against Georgia, and that's why that Georgia game was an interesting game, right, is we actually rushed for so many yards. That's what kind of masked our productivity, and that's what has to happen again here, I think, this weekend, is we're going to have to be able to run the ball. If we cannot run the ball, you're going to see a very similar situation to Vanderbilt. Um, South Carolina's secondary is not great. They're not horrible. You know, Their real weakness is, is stopping the run. They cannot stop the run. That's what's plagued them. Um, if they can stop the pass at an average level and stop the run at a good level, then we know this team's going to struggle. So this game feels weird. It's a noon kick, again, which is always weird. I have no idea what the atmosphere will be like there, uh, but I, my gut tells me that South Carolina really wants this game. And I think we really want this game too because I think our guys want to make the playoff. I think. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't. You have They're so much to play for. Yeah, for I mean, certain. we're still there. If we win out... I know I have friends who want to tell me all the time that we don't control our own destiny and we wouldn't make it if we went out, and I just don't buy that. You know, if we if we went out, we beat Bama, we we beat those teams, we'll be in the playoff. 
So there's so much to play for. So it, to me, it's just we're in such a weird spot right now with regards to what this team is capable of. Um, I want to hope that the Vanderbilt game is a team against just a, a great defense that had a really unlucky scenario with turnovers, and we still won, which shows character. But you know, I, I don't know. I mean, what what are what are your thoughts on maybe what our offensive production can be in this game? How many points can we score? I mean, what's realistic here? I'm with you. If we can run the ball, I think we can put up some points. That opens up the passing game a little bit. Uh, that sounds like so old school. Got to run the ball to win, which I don't think is true in today's game. But for us, I think it is true. Uh, I, I expect points to come a little easier, yards to come a little easier. I, I hopefully, we'll look like a more competent offense against this South Carolina defense than we did against a really stout Vanderbilt D uh, who were playing right into their hands with what we couldn't do. Um, so I, I think we'll put up some more points. I think you'll see, you know, the offense look, you know, not like dangerous, but competent is maybe the right word. Um, you'll see some hopefully big plays from guys like, uh, Robinson and Callaway who will, you know, hopefully test some of the, you know, defensive backs of South Carolina. Those guys are tough to deal with if you can have a quarterback getting the ball on time. Um, and I think Kelvin and Scarlett, and maybe we get Conkright back in the mix. I think those guys uh, do some damage. I, I think we will be able to run the ball against South Carolina. And that'll be that'll be a main key. And speaking of keys to the game, what are some of the keys to this game? Last week it was it was don't turn the ball over, mm-hmm. uh, and which we did a lot of that, <laughs> and we almost paid the price this week. Probably a little tougher to identify what the keys are. What are some of your keys? I'm going to say rushing yardage for us and on defense for us, I'm going to say, can we force some turnovers? We didn't have any against Vanderbilt. We're, we are going to need to keep this game not from going right down the wire. We're going to need some interceptions or strip sack fumble, which we're certainly capable of doing. Defense needs to, as they say, get the ball. What about you? There's Everything in me says that, that this one stat that matters in this game is our rushing attack. I mean, that, that's it. Last last week it was turnovers. This week it's it's running. If we can run the ball, we will win this game. Because that will allow our, our play action fakes and our bootlegs to work. If you can't run the ball, those plays are irrelevant. And then Shreon is, is really in his weakest moments. Um, we have to be able to run the ball to win this game. I actually think that if we run the ball the way we did against Vanderbilt, that we will not win this game. I think we will lose this game if we rush for 93 yards on 32 attempts. It's not going to happen. South right. Carolina has a much better offense than Vanderbilt does. Um, so that's huge. I expect our defense to play well. South Carolina has been rather prolific their past three games. Like we said, they put up 450 yards in, in every single game. I said earlier they put up 350 on Vanderbilt, but it was actually 450. I mean, so since Spurrier left, they have been on fire offensively. They're getting a lot of production. Uh, Vanderbilt, like we said, gave up 450 to them. So they did it against a good defense. Um, the best thing about this game is South Carolina can't do the kneel down, kneel down, kneel down punch strategy that Vanderbilt did and beat us. There's absolutely no way they can do that. They'll wear down. We will be able to run the ball on them. They have to take some chances. And that has been our biggest ally this year, is teams that have to take chances against our defense ultimately pay a price. Um, We're going to need to probably steal some points on special teams again. You know, that was huge in the Georgia game. That opened up that game. We didn't get any out of Vanderbilt. We almost had several. Yeah. Didn't get any, didn't capitalize. So 
Uh, it just feels like the key to the game, though, is, is the rushing numbers. I'm totally with you. I think if you want to watch one thing, watch that. If we can rush for over 150, especially if we can hit 200, I think this will be a game we can win by two scores. If we don't do that, I think it really could be it could be a tight one. Yeah, okay. Well, that's obviously going to be the key to the game. Well, we think it will be. Uh, give me your prediction here. I, I went 26-6 last week in the Venable game thinking we get two two scores off of special teams. In this game, I'm tempted to say we're going to score in the mid-20s, again, because we get assisted by some scores. It seems crazy after what I watched to predict us to score in the mid-20s, but it, has, it just has to happen against South Carolina. So I, I like us to be right around 27. And, uh, you know, I, I want to say that South Carolina is going to be at 17, but I want to hedge that bet and say that I have a, I have a really odd feeling that we either win this game with a little bit of ease or we lose this game. I've got a funny feeling that if this game is close, we don't win this game. And so my gut is we win by, you know, 10 or more or we lose, which is a weird a weird thought. A weird thought to be predicting a game like that. But that's kind of how it feels to me. So what, what are you going on record with? I'm with you on that. I, I feel like there's a big chance we could lose this game. But I do see us getting some pressure on Perry Orth, the, the South Carolina quarterback. And so I'm going to say 24 13 and i i think you're right i could totally see us losing this game you know 27 24 or something crazy like that so there you go well with that let's bring in our south carolina guests to get some some more insight there's been a lot of crazy things that have gone on in the south carolina program this year including obviously every florida fan's favorite steve spurrier stepping down we're going to get his thoughts and more on a bunch of questions really regarding the program and their future and kind of what they're thinking about this weekend's matchup all right, we are joined now by Dave Caravella, who covers South Carolina for the Post and Courier in Charleston. Been doing that for the last two years. Dave, thanks so much for being on. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to help. All right, so this is big news down in Gainesville when this happened. Steve Spurrier stepping down. What was that like when he stepped down? Was that shocking to the people around the program? I think uh, everybody who had seen Steve's demeanor uh, in the previous weeks thought this was coming, but thought it was coming at the end of the season. Um, it, it was, you, you would have been hard-pressed to find anybody who thought he was going to hang around another year, despite you know the occasional comments about, I got three years left on my contract, you know, and, and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, it, he had taken a, a turn to where he was, you, you, it was dispiriting for him. You could just tell in his answers and press conferences and his demeanor, um, the fun was completely gone. Uh, and, and he was just, he was just not a guy who showed any signs of wanting to do this much longer. Now, do we expect this to come out at nine thirty on a Monday night in the middle of the season? Absolutely not. Um, but I, th- you know, I think, I think in the bigger picture, they, they solved a big headache for South Carolina, which was which was going to be, you know, what do we do if our all-time winningest coach doesn't want to leave and we need to make a change? And um, much like the situation at Virginia Tech, and that was that was a real worry on a lot of people's uh, minds because Dennis Spurrier is beloved here, um, I'm, I'm sure, just like he is in, in Florida. And, uh, you know, there's – I mean, they, they're probably going to name the field after him at some point. And, and the last thing they wanted to do was have to force the guy out. So I think there was – a huge sigh of relief when Spurrier sort of took that option off the table. Um, and, and that almost maybe superseded the surprise everybody felt when he pulled the trigger on this in the middle of the year. So I've seen some of the national media criticize him for quitting on his team and calling out other people in the media for giving him a pass. Is there any of that kind of lurking up there that some of the players might feel like he quit on them? 
I think uh, the results of the last few weeks uh, should probably tell you that this was the right move to make. Um, you know, in, in, in the abstract, viewing this, you know, in kind of in a vacuum, it, it, it's very easy to see why people would see this as Spurrier failing on his program. Um, if you had been up close to it and just seen how moribund everything was from week to week, um, you know, this was this was this was the sooner the better. To be to be very honest with you, and I think the way that the team has been energized and been so much more competitive the last couple of weeks probably bolsters the backs up the, the, the decision Steve made Spurrier in his resignation press conference says this team needs to hear another voice that's not mine and they have absolutely proven that to be the case uh, in, in how they've responded under interim coach Sean Elliott playing two of their better games of the season the last two weeks and so we know that the South Carolina job has been elevated by Spurrier. It's it's more prominent now. It, he's proven you can win there. Do we know who South Carolina is looking for as a candidate? Is Sean Elliott one of them? Yeah, Sean, Sean Elliott is, is one of them. And to this point, he's the only known one. Um, uh, South Carolina has been very tight-lipped about this situation. Uh, A.D. Ray, Ray Tanner's a great guy. He's very accessible to the media. Uh, he, he usually appears at the, at the Tuesday football press briefings. Uh, he's very visible to us and very accessible to us. He has not been the last several weeks. Um so you know, this, people who are, you know understand how coaching searches work uh, tell me that with the amount of runway he had uh, remaining in the season, um, it, it's very likely that he's got a head start on communicating with potential candidates through search firms and agents and things like that. And I wouldn't be surprised uh, if they had somebody ready to go relatively soon after the, the, the season ends, uh, November 28th. Um, now, as to who that is, uh, you know, I hear Tom Herman's name, the guy from Houston, a lot down here. Uh, I don't necessarily hear that from USC, but I hear it from people who should be involved enough in, in these kind of processes to know who's in play and who's not. Um, but you also hear his name in, in relation to Virginia Tech. You also hear his name in relation to Maryland. Um, and, and so I think South Carolina has a lot of competition in terms of the level of coach they're perhaps looking at uh, and, and who else might be after them. So in your opinion, what type of coach should they be looking for? And is that the same type of coach they actually are looking for? I think they need a guy who can recruit his butt off, guys. I mean, and the, the recruiting situation here has languished uh, to an almost embarrassing degree. Um, they are playing a handful of walk-ons on offense uh, because they have some you know, three- and four-star guys who just did not work out. Um, and, and they need a guy who's going to reinvigorate the, the recruiting base. South Carolina has a hard job as far as recruiting goes because this state does not produce the depth of talent to carry any progress. Um, you look at Clemson, they get a lot of guys from Florida. You look at South Carolina, they get a lot of guys from Atlanta. And you need those secondary markets to pull from because even when the, the, the top talent set in South Carolina is Jadavian Clowney, Marcus Lattimore good, there aren't many of those guys below them. So you need a guy who's really, really aggressive as a recruiter and really, really innovative as a recruiter and can perhaps get South Carolina into some of these newer – in some markets maybe they haven't been in play in in the past. And you look at some of the names who were tossed around for a lot of these openings, like Tom Herman and Justin Fuente. They're young, enthusiastic, energetic guys who have built mid-major programs, so to speak, uh, on, on, because they've been able to get players those programs were not able to get before. And South Carolina needs a coach to get in here and really revive their recruiting base uh, and, and start getting better players than they've gotten the last two or three years. 
And so talking directly about the state of the program right now under Sean Elliott, uh, we know that Perry Orth has stepped up and, and seemingly done a better job. The offense has been more productive. They've played better, like you mentioned. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what the mindset is right now with the team, how they're feeling about the season, given kind of the roller coaster they're on, and maybe what they feel like the future looks like? You know, for a team that's three and six, uh, I can't imagine they were anyone that would be in a better mental space than this group right now. I mean, they, it, it's, it's been stunning to watch, guys. I mean, this team was just flat out getting hammered every week. And then Spurrier leaves. They go to Texas A&M. They're in the ball game in the fourth quarter. They go to Tennessee. They're at the 18-yard line with a chance to win the game in the final minute. They fumble the ball away. Um, they have their their whatever Sean Elliott is doing, and a lot of that is 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 being a player's coach and doing simple things like allowing music in the locker room, which Spurrier didn't do. Playing music at practice, which Spurrier didn't do. You know, maybe taking a more personal touch with some of these players that perhaps a 70-year-old legend just doesn't do because that's what he is. Some of that seems to have worked off, worked out. He's put a lot of different players in a lot of different positions and is kind of looking for anything he can right now. Um, but all that is kind of short-term. Uh, that doesn't speak to sort of you know what the program is capable of going forward. I still think South Carolina is in pretty good shape. I still think there's a handful of very good players in this on this team that you know could get somebody a base to build with. But you, know, you mentioned Perry Orth. Perry Orth's the guy who walked on to the program. Um, you know, one of the key receptions in the fourth quarter against Tennessee was to a guy named Hayden Hurst, who was a 22-year-old walk-on former baseball player. And, you know, I mean, I know Florida had kicking tryouts, but I can't imagine many programs are trying to win SEC games late the season with walk-ons going to walk-ons. And, and and that's the kind of situation that has to be resolved by whoever takes control of this thing next. So everybody knows the name Pharaoh Cooper, you know, and what he means for South Carolina. Can you give us maybe one other guy on offense and one other guy on defense that Florida fans should be looking out for this week? Yeah, it's it's kind of a pity, guys, that uh, that he fumbled the ball at the 18. I mean, really, uh, he had it kind of punched out from behind him uh, late in the game at Tennessee. But Jarrell Adams, the tight end, become more and more of a factor. Uh, you know, they, they really don't have a second receiving threat from a receiver's point of view behind Farrow. Um, the guy they were counting on has missed almost the entire season with a hamstring injury. Uh, one, one, another walk-on named Matrick Belton, you know, caught a couple of big passes late in the game against Tennessee, and they've relied more and more on him. Uh, but but Jarrell has, is a guy who I think everybody has always thought has all SEC talent. They've just never been able to get it out of him. Um, I, I think that he's showing a little bit more of that late in the year and becoming more of a receiving threat. Had a, had a couple of, caught a fourth down touchdown pass uh, in the third quarter against Tennessee, which helped USC tie the game late, and you know had a couple of big receptions on that last drive before he had it knocked out and, and fumbled. Uh, but but Jarrell is absolutely a, a threat to catch the ball and make a big play in the end zone. And on defense, everything goes through Sky Moore. Um, he's, he's the team's leading tackler. He's knocking on the door of, of the, the most interceptions ever uh, for a career. Um, he's just he's, he, he, he is South Carolina's absolute top playmaker on defense. Uh, he's the quarterback on that side. He has you know made helped the coordinators make adjustments in terms of scheme. And the uh, Skymore number ten is absolutely through what everything flows through uh, on, on the defensive standpoint. All right, Dave, let's talk about the, the game this weekend directly. What are your thoughts, and then what are maybe the, the South Carolina fan base's thoughts as a whole on their chances of winning in this game? 
and and kind of what what are the keys, the perceived keys to the game on South Carolina's end, and then we'd love to get your score prediction uh, at the end of that as well. I think the, uh, the the Vegas line offered a little bit of an indication of all this, guys, when it came out at eight and a half yesterday. Um, that's after two weeks of South Carolina being heavy double-digit underdogs on the road. And I know South Carolina has played better, but it's, it's still the same guys who are you know can't quite win games yet. Um, and I think maybe some of that has to do with the, the matchup perhaps is a little bit better for South Carolina uh, than Texas A&M and Tennessee was. I mean, you, we all remember the game of the Swamp last year. We all remember how much trouble Florida had, you know, generating any offense at all. At all. And I think the fact that, you know, Treon Harris is, is, is in play again, um, you know, it, it creates a situation where I, I don't know if, you know, maybe, maybe South Carolina fans feel like this is an offense that sort of plays more to South Carolina's defensive strengths. Um, Tennessee and, and A&M, you know, look like bad matchups from the very beginning. The way they spread you out in space and, you know, and try to and try to throw it all over the place. And even though I know McElwain's doing a lot of different things uh, compared to what Muschamp did, and has clearly breathed, you know, a, a new life into a, a lot of the same players, I think schematically, perhaps um, the X's and O's aren't as intimidating here as perhaps the last two weeks have been, and maybe that gives South Carolina fans a little more hope they can be in this game. I'm very interested to see what the crowd is like uh, noon on Saturday, you know, three weeks left in the season for a team that's three and six. Um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for Sean Elliott to get this job based on how they played the last two years, at least, you know, from what I hear on local radio and things like that. But, you know, our 82,000 is going to show up to prove that on Saturday. And, if, you know, if they, if, if they have a big crowd here, uh, that really throws itself behind what they've seen the last two weeks, then I absolutely think South Carolina's got a chance in this game. If, if you know, if we we roll up there at noon on Saturday and, you know, there's 50,000 people here and it's a lackluster atmosphere, um, it, South Carolina's not going to have a whole lot of help. Um, certain things have to conspire to help keep South Carolina in the game, but I think they've proven the last two weeks that, you know, they they believe they can stay in it, and that's, that's half the battle with these guys. All right, Dave, what's the score going to be this weekend? What's the score going to be this weekend? Uh, that's a good one. I don't know if I put that much thought into it yet being Monday, but I, you know, I don't know. You know, Florida's offense has been all over the place. They can score 35 one week, they can score six the next. Um, and, and South Carolina's kind of found its groove uh, scoring-wise and total offense-wise the last three weeks. Um, maybe it's somewhere in the middle of the road. Uh, you know, I, I think South Carolina's gotten a lot better, but they still haven't made plays to win games. Um, I, I think that'll probably be the same thing again. You know, it, I, I'd go with something in the neighborhood of twenty-one seventeen. And the winner of that game is. It would. I, I think it will be the Florida Gators. Okay. All right then. You're, you're echoing, by the way. I think a lot of the thoughts that are here right now too. It's almost like South, oh, really? South Carolina at three and six feels like they're trending in the positive direction, and Florida. Uh, you know, at, at what are we eight and one? It feels like we're trending in the wrong direction. A lot of it having to do with the state of our offense, which is interesting. So I would say that you're encapsulating a lot of the feelings here on campus as well. Well, that's good to know. It's you know, I'm not pulling this stuff you know just out of my hat blindly. I'm glad to know it's based at least in a little bit of consensus. <laughs> okay, for all the Gator fans on the road this weekend in Columbia, can you give them maybe your go-to restaurant or a place you'd recommend for them? Oh wow! Okay, uh, that's fun. Yeah, there uh, there are a couple of places um, in in Colombia that I like. If you like sort of, if you're looking for southern, you know, uh, there's a place in the Vista area of Colombia called Motor Supply Company, 
Uh, it used to be a garage. Now it's a southern fine dining restaurant, but it's not too fancy to where you can't walk in there, you know, with a with a little pair of shorts on. Um, I like that place a lot, and I like a I like a place called Colas uh, in the same area of town, which is a little more sort of you know American bistro and not so much southern. Um, uh, those are perhaps my two favorite restaurants in Colombia, and then uh, we have. I would I would challenge you to find a better dive bar in the Southeastern Conference than the Wig at the corner of Gervais and Main Street across from the state capitol. It's an underground bar with red lights and skulls on the wall, and I absolutely love the place. And I don't think there's any place better in Colombia. Wow. All right. Thanks, Dave. Really appreciate it. Some great recommendations there. Hopefully some Gator fans will be able to check that out. All right. It's been Dave Caravello, writer for the Post and Courier in Charleston. Thanks so much for being on. I really appreciate talking to you. Hey, guys. Anytime. Enjoyed it. Before we close out episode 11, let's talk a little bit about the biggest game that happened last weekend, which was the L- the LSU-Alabama game. Both of us had Alabama winning that game. What were your thoughts, takeaways, key impressions? Well, to quote NFL great, you know, for LSU, they are who we thought they were. You know, I, we thought the LSU was a pretty limited team and wasn't, you know, they're a good team, but not a dominant team. And I think Alabama showed that. They just absolutely obliterated them on offense. I thought they would contain Fournette. I didn't think they would do the kind of job they did. They looked absolutely terrifying to me. Those are my thoughts exactly. We've said on the podcast we thought LSU was a little bit fraudulent. I thought they looked that way. I thought Bama was good. I thought they would be the toughest matchup for us all year. I don't want to overvalue Alabama right now because I have to remind myself that LSU, I thought, was, again, a bit of a fraudulent team. They're very limited. And a great matchup for Bama. Great matchup for Alabama. I mean, that's just the bottom line. So I don't want to get too high on Alabama. They're probably not as good as they looked, but but in a year where it's really hard to predict who's going to win the college football playoff, they look like the best team in the race right now. And more importantly for Gator fans, they look like a horrible matchup for us. Yeah, the SEC title game seems like, oh, great, you won the East. Here's your here's your prize, getting freaking trucked by Bama. Not looking forward to that. Who knows, maybe Bama comes out there this week and lays an egg against Mississippi State. You know, coming off a very physical game, this is, you know, Bruce Feldman, who's a writer for Fox Sports, has this body blow theory where it's like, you know, you would see a team play like Arkansas last year and win, but then the next week lose because they're so busted up. Uh, so who knows? Mississippi State is a capable team. Um, they can do some things spread wise, and you know Dak Prescott can certainly put up some points and yardage. So we'll see. Uh, do you think Bama ha- handles Bama? Yeah, Bama's favored by eight, which seems low to me. I think Bama covers the spread and wins that game. Nick Saban's not going to allow this team to have a letdown. He's got them playing their best ball. Um, I don't think Mississippi State. Although a feisty team, better than I thought they would be. Dan Mullen doing a really nice job there. I don't, I don't think that that's a game Alabama loses uh, per se. So before we before we ride out into the sunset here, we had a super crazy play again last weekend with the Arkansas play. Wow. <laughs> that's four weekends in a row. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's worth mentioning. Wow. You, keep, you, you said this a few weeks ago. You keep thinking you've seen the craziest play you've ever seen, and then another one happens. I mean, what a year in college football. That's and what a smart football. play by the tight end. I mean, yeah, you brilliant. can't just get tackled. Throw it yeah. up there. Who knows and how does happens? that not happen more often? I don't know. But, but let's turn our attention to Clemson really quickly. They're ranked number one. Clemsoning is maybe one of my favorite you know, verbs or adjectives, depending on how you want to use it. Um, and it's just great. It's a great thing. But they didn't 
they didn't pull a typical Clemson. They weren't Clemsoning on Saturday. They beat Florida State. Are they the best team in the country, in your opinion? No. Simple. I mean, I think they're a really good team. They're probably deserving of a top four spot. I just haven't seen them be the kind of dominant team. I think they're really solid on both sides of the ball. And you know what? In a year like this, that might be enough to get you a national championship. Uh, there's teams with much higher ceilings than them, I think. Uh most notably Bama, possibly Ohio State, if they could ever put it together. Who knows if they can? Yeah, I like I like your thoughts there on Clemson. I think they are definitely one of the top four or five. I think it's wide open this year. I think Baylor took a huge blow losing their quarterback. Yeah. That, that brought them back down to the pack. But Clemson looks like a good team, a nice team. They don't look like a, a, a great team that I think a lot of Clemson fans are hoping that they are. But certainly they're riding high on confidence and emotion now because they've avoided their school's long curse of choking. And they should win out and make the playoff. I think that will happen. So I'm not saying they're going to now you know, lay an egg here in the next couple weeks. Their schedule isn't too hard. They do have to play a surprising North Carolina team in the ACC championship. They do. It's like an all-Florida affair. Larry Fedora used to coach at UF, and Clemson has like a 80% Florida roster. So, you know, hey, go state of Florida. A lot of good teams in the race right now. Uh, with that, let's put let's put a wrap on this show, episode eleven in the books. We want to thank everyone as always for listening. We certainly appreciate your support. We love doing the podcast. We want to thank all those that help us each week with guests and with stats. Certainly, our production assistant Austin Ryer. He's been a big ad, I know, for you and I, Alan, mm-hmm. time wise and help wise. So thanks, thanks to thanks yeah, to Gus Austin. Scott too. Mm-hmm. You know, great Gator guest, and then also loved having Dave Caravello on. Awesome job by him talking about South Carolina. As always, if you enjoy the cast, you can drop a like on our Facebook page. You can rate us. Please definitely rate us on uh, iTunes or elsewhere. It helps the show get spread. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We look forward to joining with you next week after what we hope to be yet another Gator win. news from Sprint. The wait is finally over. The new Samsung Galaxy Note 10 with the powerful S Pen has arrived at Sprint and you can get it for 50% off with a Sprint Flex lease. That's right. Get the power of performance and productivity of the Galaxy Note 10 for less than $20 per month. There's never been a better time to switch. To learn more, visit your local Sprint store, sprint.com slash Galaxy Note 10 or call 800 Sprint 1 today. 1979 a month after 1980 monthly credit applied with two bills with approved credit 18 month lease and new line of service if canceled. Literally remain balance due. Excuse tax coverage and offer not available everywhere through the activation fee restrictions apply.